Today's scripture reading will be found in Genesis chapter 39, starting at verse 1, and I'll be reading through the whole chapter. And if you're reading on your pew Bibles, I'll be on page 33. Again, that's Genesis chapter 39, starting at verse 1, and reading through the whole chapter. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian's master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he, he made him overseer in the house and, all, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in his house than I am, nor has he kept back, kept back anything from me except yourself. Because you are my, his wife, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went to the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand, and fled, and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hands, and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household, and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He became, he came into me and lied with me. But I cried out with a loud voice, and as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me, but as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard these words, and his wife spoke to him, this is, this is the way your servant treated me? His anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he said, and he said was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all that the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done in there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. I look out there and I uh, realize that um, a lot of us have been feeling under the weather this is not a great time of uh, year uh, in terms of sickness, but uh, once again we're reminded of God's grace and his sustaining of all of us. And um, I myself have been sidelined 
uh, with this COVID for the last almost two weeks, and I'm very glad to be back in action. Appreciate you praying for me over these uh, last little, uh, this, this last week and a half or so, and uh, for checking in on me. It means a lot to me. I, I realize being sick uh, puts one in a bit of a time warp, but even so, doesn't it feel like Christmas was an eternity ago? I don't know if that's just me. You know, how quickly we move on from the lights and the, the presents and the parties. Things that at the time just seem so all-consuming, really, are now all but forgotten. And more significantly, how, how quickly, have you ever thought about this, how quickly we move on from the truths that occupied our mind during Christmas, during Advent, you know, the glorious reality of the incarnation, the dawning of Emmanuel, God with us. But a couple, a couple weeks into the new year and we're all like, I got this. I got this. We were so comforted by, by it three or four weeks ago, but, but now it seems to have uh, gone the way of all of the Christmas tree and, and uh, pine needles. The biggest danger post-Christmas, it seems to me, is not, not that we've moved on from our presence, but that we've forgotten about the Lord's presence. It's a perpetual danger. And it's very important to recall that the Lord's presence was indeed one of the, the presents that he promised uh, to the patriarchs. This is one of the glorious promises that came to our forefathers and have been fulfilled in Christ. Hopefully by this point in the book of Genesis, you are acquainted with uh, some of these promises that God made first to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to Jacob. And at this point in the story, he's busy fulfilling these promises in the lives of Jacob's offspring. You'll recall that, that God had promised them progeny. Progeny. He, he promised them a multitude of seed or offspring that would come from them. He promised them property. So he, he, made, uh, he made precious promise about vast tracts of land that they would inherit for their possession. He promised them uh, prosperity along with these lands. In other words, God is saying that he is going to bless their socks off. I don't know if that made it into any English translations, but that's the idea. I'm going to bless your socks off. I'm going to increase your possessions. Their greatest possession, of course, is the Lord himself. So, so the promise is, I will be your God and you will be my people. I suppose the only thing better than possessing God is to be possessed by God. And this is exactly the heart of the promises that God is making to these patriarchs. And closely related to all of this, of course, is the promise of his presence. And so the Lord declares to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I will be with you. This is actually how all of this, is, any of this is possible. It's through the presence of God himself. So progeny, property, prosperity, possessions, presence, 
These are all precious promises indeed, but suppose you arranged them all in a square and then you played that classic Sesame Street game where you had to identify which of these things um, just wasn't like the other, you know, which of those things just doesn't belong, which one would it be? I think the oddball in that set of promises would be the presence of the Lord. The other things are all, it seems to me, tangible. They're things that you can sink your teeth in. They're, they're things that you can actually see and you can quantify them and qualify them. You know, things like offspring and land and livestock. You, you get a sense for what those promises are. You can touch them and, and feel them and sense them. But the presence of the Lord, it just it seems to us more of an abstract idea. You know, it's almost ethereal. How do, you, how do you even know when you're experiencing it? It's not as easy to know as it is to know when you have children or to know when you are in a land that has been given to you. And I think that, that goes a long way in explaining why this promise is not more precious to us. Why we can just read it and be kind of ho-hum about it. Why does it seem to stick with us for more than a couple of weeks? It's too abstract. It's too theoretical. We understand stuff better when it's physical or at least practical. But in God's goodness, this is what's going on today, we've come to a passage that shows us just how practical the promise of the Lord's presence actually is. It affects every single area of your life and mine. In fact, God with us is the explanation for our entire existence. I realize that's a, kind of an outlandish statement to make, and so I, I hope to show that to you. God with us is the explanation for our entire existence. On a side note, if you've, if you've spent any kind of time here at Grace Baptist Church, you'll know that we are committed to expositional preaching. And what that means is that we strive to have the point of a particular passage be the point of that particular sermon. And for the preacher, you know, this requires a lot of, um, a lot of work, a lot of study, a lot of blood and sweat and tears and prayer. And so let me just take this opportunity for, uh, to express my thanks to Pastor Matt for preaching last week out of the book of James. That's a lot of hard work to, uh, to figure out. The, the main task, of course, is to figure out what the divine and human authors intended for us to, to know and to learn from a particular passage and then to communicate that point to the people of God. Sometimes it's very, very difficult to do that, but sometimes it's kind of easy. And sometimes, what I mean by that is, sometimes scripture is crystal clear about the point. 
And in the goodness of God, on a week where I don't have the same kind of energy that I typically have or the strength to study like I would want, the point of this passage came out loud and clear. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, of course it's easy, Pastor. This is, everyone knows that this story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, everyone knows what that story is about. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. Everyone knows this is a sermon about how to, how to resist temptation. But no, that's actually not it. That's not the point of the passage. There, sure, there are some um, things, important things even, that we will learn along these lines, but that's not the point of the passage. Maybe you caught it. I hope you did, as Noah read the passage a few minutes ago. But in case you didn't, just follow along with me at Genesis 39. I want to just <clears throat> point out the structure to you. Genesis 39, scan with me, if you will. Verse 2 says, The Lord was with Joseph. Verse 3, The Lord was with him. And now look at the end. Verse 21, But the Lord was with him. Verse 23, Because the Lord was with him. Structurally, what's going on here is these are like bookends which hold the whole passage together, this concept of God's presence. And then functionally, the, the repeated phrase, the Lord is with him, the Lord is with him, the Lord was with him, it rings out to us as we're reading it, it rings out like a bell, so that we can't miss the fact that this passage is all about the power of the promised presence of the Lord. This is about the power of the promised presence of the Lord. Derivatively, as I said, there's going to be lots of things for us to learn practically about things like how to resist temptation. But primarily, what the author of this passage wants us to understand is something very significant about the presence of the Lord and what that means for our lives. As I said uh, a few minutes ago, the Lord's presence is immensely practical. And I hope to be able to show you that from this passage as we key in on four areas of our daily life that can be transformed by God's powerful presence. Four aspects of our daily life that can be transformed by God's powerful presence. I want you to first consider <coughs> the presence of the Lord and your triumphs. The presence of the Lord and your triumphs. It also feels like an eternity since we last heard from, from Joseph. We left him back in chapter 37 where he had just been rescued out of a pit to be sold into slavery. And even that represents a sort of elevation, doesn't it? It's, it's some sort of upward mobility to go from a, a cistern. Even if you're going into slavery, you're still, you're still rising in the ranks. 
And we, when we left chapter 37, even higher things were hinted at, kind of leaving us a cliffhanger. In the very last verse of chapter 37, where we learn that Joseph's master, <coughs> the guy that bought him, was a man by the name of Potiphar, and he was the second most powerful man in Egypt. So this bodes well, potentially. But then the narrator does a, a frustrating thing and intentionally leaves us hanging while we follow Judah down to Adullam and among the Canaanites, which for him and for his offspring was a descent, not just geographically, but spiritually. Joseph's on the rise. Judah and his brothers, by extension, are descending into sin and chaos. And I suppose I don't need to remind you how ugly chapter 38 was. We're glad to be past it. We're relieved to come into chapter 39 and to resume Joseph's story. And quickly, we discover what the narrator had hinted at, what we were anticipating, and that is that Joseph's ascendancy is continuing under this Potiphar. We see that he went to work in his master's house, and he starts off as his personal attendant, and he's faithful in, in little, so he's given more and more responsibility. And ultimately, Joseph becomes extraordinarily successful. Potiphar makes him overseer of his house. All of his house's affairs and everything to do with the household, Joseph is in charge. Potiphar doesn't have to worry about a thing because Joseph is over it. Basically, verses 1 to 6 are devoted to describing Joseph's total success. And I mean total. If you want, this is an interesting exercise. You can go back through and circle, if you do that in your Bibles, or at least note how many times you come across the word all, A-L-L. -L. It's a lot. And it's describing Joseph's total triumph from the bottom of the pit to the top of Potiphar's household. Total triumph. And the question is, here's, here's what I'm particularly interested in. How do you explain that? How do you explain that? If you're anything like me, you've, you've got this picture of Joseph in your head and it's formed by years and years of Sunday school class uh, lessons and you've got this picture of this, this um, super handsome and capable young man. He's very talented. He's got a winning personality. He's, he's an alpha male. Uh, he, he's the complete package. This is who I think of Joseph as. And this, this picture that I just automatically have in my mind provides a ready-made explanation that the, the reason for Joseph's success is the winning combination of all of these elements. Good genes, hard work, talent, natural ability. That's just the way I, I think naturally because of this picture I have of Joseph in my head. But if we think this way, we're dead wrong. 
Thankfully, the, the text is very careful to provide the explanation for Joseph's triumph. And it has nothing to do with Joseph. Verse 2, look there with me. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. That, those aren't just two separate uh, thoughts. The, those are connected in a cause and effect sort of a way. Jacob's success, sorry, Joseph's success, if I do that at any point from this point forward, mess up Joseph and Jacob, you'll know what I'm talking about. Joseph's success is caused by only one factor, the presence of the Lord. It was the Lord who caused everything that Joseph touched to prosper in his hand. Joseph's life, his, his work, his success, these can't be explained naturally. They can only be explained supernaturally. And the same is true with your life and with mine. If you have anything going for you, if you run a successful business, if you're advancing in your job, if you're doing well at school, if your kids are well-adjusted, if your household is running like a well-oiled machine, if you've, if you've got a good reputation in your community, there's ultimately just one explanation for why that is so. It's because the Lord is present. It's because the Lord is with you. It's because the Lord himself is prospering you. It's not because you are wonderful and talented and beautiful and smart and, and hardworking and charming. It's not because you somehow just happen to possess the Midas touch. You know, some people are born with it. It's because the Lord is with you. And that's the only reason. It's because the Lord is not just with you, it's because he's for you. And it's very important that we understand this. Otherwise, we're not going to pray properly. And we're not going to praise properly. You'll, you'll fail to be thankful. You'll rob God of his glory. And actually, this is leading us quite nicely into a second area in our lives where God's promised presence ought to be proclaimed. So let's look, we'll kind of take these together. Let's look secondly at the presence of the Lord and your testimony. The presence of the Lord and your testimony. It's not enough for, for us to just kind of privately understand this theological explanation of our triumph. It's imperative that others see and understand this as well. So take another look at the first six verses. <coughs> this time, <coughs> excuse me, we can ask ourselves, what is Potiphar seeing that makes him promote Joseph? What is Potiphar seeing that makes him promote Joseph? Look at verse 3 to come right to it. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Potiphar sets Joseph 
over his whole household. Again, not because he recognizes his raw talent and his potential, but because he understands that, that Joseph's life and work had everything to do with the presence of the Lord. And notice that Potiphar is not speaking generically here. Okay? He's not speaking generically. You know, like this, he's not thinking to himself, this, this young man's uh, God, his small g God, seems to not be upset with him and is prospering him. No, Potiphar is connecting Joseph and all of the associated blessings. He's making the connection between Joseph and Yahweh, the one true God. Between all of who Joseph is and all that Joseph has done, he's making the connection between that and the presence of this Yahweh. And that is quite an admission for a thoroughly pagan Egyptian to be making. I hope you I hope that's not lost on you. That this guy would know nothing otherwise of the one true and living God, Yahweh, the covenant Lord. Potiphar is thoroughly pagan. You can tell that even by his name. His name means given by Re, R-E, which is just one of a whole pantheon of gods that existed in in Egypt, each of these gods had kind of had their own realm, whether it was agriculture or weather or fertility. They had these areas that they were over. This is, this is what Potiphar would be steeped in. But in Joseph, he sees something drastically different. He understands, and he comes to understand, that Yahweh, the one God, big G God, is causing this young man to triumph in, in every realm. Again, notice the word all throughout. This one God is causing this one man to triumph in every realm. What a powerful statement that would be to a pagan. So we ask, how does Potiphar come to realize that and understand that? Through observation? Yes, obviously. But I have to believe that, that Joseph was publicly testifying to these things. That Joseph was explicitly giving glory to Yahweh for everything good that ever happened. I get that impression. I'm not, I'm not just making that up. But I'm, I get that impression from verses like in chapter 41, verse 16, for example, when... I uh, hate to spoil this for you. I won't give you too many details, but um, Pharaoh has some bad dreams and he hears word that there's this dude in prison that knows how to interpret dreams. So he sends for him. Of course, that's Joseph. And right away, you know, Pharaoh says, I understand that you are, are good at this kind of thing. And Joseph right away says, He's very quick to correct Pharaoh. He's not content to let the, the natural explanation rule the day. So Joseph says, no, actually, you've misunderstood. It's not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So I have to believe 
this is, this is who Joseph is. I have to believe that whenever Potiphar was praising Joseph for his household management skills or for how he increased uh, his investments or whatever, whenever Potiphar was giving Joseph attaboys for those sorts of things, Joseph definitely would have been quick to say things like, it's, it's not me. It's Yahweh. The, the Lord is with me, don't, don't you see? And then we read the result in verse 5. Look there with me. It says, from, that, from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So the timing of all of this is a testimony in and of itself. This is how Potiphar can connect some of these dots. All of this is starting from the time that he purchased this Hebrew boy from these Ishmaelites. All of the blessings and prosperities that came to Potiphar and came to his estate, they correlated perfectly with the presence of Joseph And Joseph was correlating this perfectly with the presence of the Lord. The the Lord's presence with Joseph resulted not just in Joseph's triumph, but it also resulted in the prosperity of this pagan Potiphar. And this is not, I want you to understand, this is not by accident. Okay, this is not just incidental blessing that Potiphar receives. You know, it's not, it's not just the kind of blessing that, that spills over, leftover stuff. It's not that the Lord is, is blessing Joseph so much that his cup runneth over and then some of it happens to spill out on Potiphar's table. It's not like that. This is all by design. This was the whole point of the promise, I would remind you. As the Lord first explained to Abraham, he said, I will bless you so that you will be a blessing. Furthermore, the Lord says, in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. This is is God's design. This is God's intention. That the blessing wouldn't just end with his people, but that it would spread into every tongue and tribe and people and language and nation. And, the, and we see in microcosm that this is exactly what's going on with Joseph and Potiphar. Potiphar understands explicitly that the only explanation for Joseph's life was that the Lord was with him. And that, and that Joseph was a channel of the Lord's blessing to Potiphar. And so I would ask, what about you today? When people observe you, and the outcome of your life, do they understand, I mean really understand, that the only (coughs) explanation is that the Lord is with you? Do they understand this because you are explicitly making the connection? Don't rely on them to just kind of make all these connections uh, themselves just by, by observing I'm asking, are you making those connections explicitly for them? 
Are you publicly giving God all the glory for any good that is seen in you or accomplished by you? Or, or are you stealing God's glory? Are you robbing Him of His glory by, by taking credit you know, for a, a big salad that you didn't even pay for, if I could put it that way? Are you taking credit for things? Are you receiving the accolades for things that actually have nothing to do with you in the first place? Consider the presence of God and your testimony. And then we could ask the related question, do your, do your friends and family, do your neighbors and, and co-workers, do they experience God's blessing on their lives through you? Or are you, are you an end user of the Lord's blessings? Or are you actually a, a channel of the Lord's blessing to others? Are you a, an end user of the gospel? Or are you a, a channel of blessing to the nations? The, that old hymn captures the essence of what our, our prayer should be. it seems to me. The song goes, May the word of God dwell richly in my heart from hour to hour so that all may see I triumph only through his power. And then, don't forget the last verse. May his beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win. And may they forget the channel seeing only him. This is the prayer of our lives that people would know, that we would know and understand and then communicate to other people that the only explanation for our life, for our entire existence, is because of the powerful presence of the Lord. Let's look in the third place at the presence of the Lord and your temptations. The presence of the Lord and your temptation. So this brings us straightway into what makes this chapter famous. This whole deal with Potiphar's wife. And thankfully you're so familiar with this story, with this part of the narrative, that I don't need to get bogged down (coughs) in all of the details. That's a fair assumption for me to make, right? I... We can come quickly to the point that for Joseph, this represents a temptation. This is a real temptation. We do ourselves a disservice if we default to the same kind of mindset that I was describing early, that earlier that just thinks about Joseph as kind of superhuman and just super gifted. And so when it comes to the advances of this married woman, we, we just naturally kind of tend to believe that Joseph, this didn't even phase him. You know, he's almost superhuman. It, he, he's, he's far above this in no real danger of succumbing. But the reality of this situation is that at this point, Joseph is a red-blooded 17 or 18-year-old young man, and he's awash in testosterone. 
He, he's made of the same stuff as his brothers, Reuben and Judah, who, you know, for example, you know their stories. I won't go into those details either, but they're, they're, they're sleeping with their stepmother or a prostitute at the drop of a hat. And, and then you add to this the reality that in that time, in that culture, there was all kinds of sexual immorality that was taking place um, among the slaves in that, whole, in that whole environment. It was happening all around Joseph. And I, I bring all that up to say, this is presenting a real temptation for Joseph. And, and if so, then he can stand in your mind, and he ought to stand in your mind as a realistic example of how to withstand temptation in a God-honoring way. When I say that this is not the main point of this story, I hope you don't hear me saying that there's nothing to learn. Obviously, the narrator is setting forth Joseph to the people of God as an example of how to resist temptation in a godly way. The details are straightforward. Joseph's a good-looking guy. He's uh, well-built. We have no reason to believe that Potiphar's wife is any different. She's probably not too shabby either. You, you consider that Potter, Potiphar is the second most powerful man in Egypt. It means that he can have the pick of the litter. Potiphar's wife, and I, I have to keep calling her that, I hope you don't mind, uh, I'm left with no other choice because the narrator doesn't want to honor her by providing her name in scripture. So I'll keep saying Potiphar's wife. She sees Joseph and she wants Joseph. And she's not even subtle about it. She, she's, her proposition is very, very blunt. It's just two words in the original language. In our translations, we have to be a little bit more delicate. So uh, we use three words, but it was a two-word proposition. You get the point. She got right to the point. There's no bones about it. So he doesn't have to interpret if maybe she's interested or whatever. No, she's, she's all out there. And in contrast to her two-word proposition, we read Joseph's response, and it's a lengthy 30-plus word refusal, which, which tells you that, that Joseph's really thinking about this. Not, he, he, he's, he's got a plan, all right? He, 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 has, he has an understanding that is at the ready you can see this in, verses, in verse 9, for example. Right off the top, he gives a great reason while he, why he's not going to succumb to this temptation. And that reason is loyalty to his master, Potiphar. Potiphar trusts him implicitly. He's given him access to everything in the whole household, except, of course, his wife. But as good as that reason is, it's not the greatest reason. So Joseph says to his master's wife at the end of verse 9, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
That sounds like what they would call a non sequitur. It doesn't seem to follow from what Joseph has just been talking about. He's been talking all about his boss and how it would be a betrayal of his boss's trust in him. And so you expect the conclusion to be, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? But that's not what we read, is it? That's not what Joseph said, because that is not what is looming largest in his mind. Do you, do you see that Joseph is so aware of the presence of the Lord in his life that the, the most terrifying thought to him is the possibility that he would commit wickedness against God. This reminds you, doesn't it, doesn't it of, of something that King David would later say in his repentance after succ- succumbing to the temptation with Bathsheba. In Psalm 51, David confesses, against you and you only have I sinned. This this is the language of someone who has come to realize the reality of the presence of a holy and a righteous God. Someone who has come to understand that all sin is primarily and ultimately wickedness and treason against God. So much so that all of the other people affected just kind of pale in comparison. That's what David has come to realize, and that's what's fueling his repentance. But I want you to notice that for Joseph, the presence of the Lord, the reality that God is with him, that, that presence is a prophylactic. It functions as, as powerful prevention. Ahead of time, not after the fact. Don't, don't get me wrong in any of this. There's all kinds of helpful strategies when we're talking about sexual sin and temptation. We, we could note that as, as Potiphar's wife switches strategies, you know, seeking to, to wear him down day by day, and then perhaps suggesting that he doesn't have to go all the way, he can just kind of lie with her, cuddle, well, there's, lot, there's lots of other strategies that, that Joseph employs, including avoiding her, not listening to her, refusing to compromise even on those halfway measures. You know, the, the Mike Pence rule, um, accountability software, group dating. There, there's all kinds of very wise strategies, which the book of Proverbs talks about, things that kinds of things that Joseph employs, obviously, but I don't want you to miss the most powerful tool for fighting temptation. And that is a deep and abiding awareness that God is with you. Think about what what this might mean for you. Yes, you, you should have content filters on on your phone and on your children's devices. I'm I'm comfortable to even go as far as to say you're a fool if you don't. But but consider how it might totally transform what you view on your phone or on your TV or how you interact with your girlfriend or your married coworker. 
if in those moments you were very aware that the Lord was with you. It should force you to the, the only appropriate conclusion, which is how, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? My, uh, my time is evaporating quickly, so I, I need to move on. But I, I don't want to do so before I, I comfort you with a reminder about Emmanuel. Don't forget about Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord Jesus Christ who, who took on flesh and dwelt among us. What we have in the Lord Jesus Christ is a sympathetic high priest who, who gets it. He was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. And then he who knew no sin became sin for us, for us sinners who succumb to temptation, who fail and actually do great wickedness against God. The Lord Jesus Christ becomes sin for us and he takes on himself on the cross all of the punishment that our sins deserve. He satisfies in himself all of the wrath of God that is justly and rightly coming against us for all of our sin. Praise God for Emmanuel. And then the Lord Jesus Christ, not only did he die, and be, not only was he buried, but three days later he was raised gloriously from the dead to signal God's total satisfaction with his atonement for our sin. And then he's ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And Jesus is coming back one day. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. The new heavens and the new earth, where there's going to be no more temptation, no more sin. This is a city that is coming wherein only righteousness dwells. I can't wait And friends, you need to understand that that is the ultimate fulfillment of all of the promises made to Abraham about progeny, about land. You set your sights way too low. I don't want to get controversial here. You set your sights way too low if you think ultimate fulfillment is in Israel. No, ultimate fulfillment about land is in the new heavens and the new earth for eternity. Prosperity, property, all of these promise, the presence of the Lord is going to be ultimately fulfilled when we are face to face with Him, dwelling with Him and Him with us for all of eternity. That's ultimate. What is penultimate? That's a fancy word that means what comes just before the ultimate. How, how is the promise of the presence of the Lord fulfilled in our Christian experience? It's fulfilled with the reality of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And a, a few weeks ago, we read in our, in our book, Enjoying God, we read about how in every temptation we can enjoy the Spirit's life. And Tim Chester says, 
This means that you don't have to sin. There's nothing that God expects you to do that you cannot do. The sin that defeats you need not defeat you. The fears that consume you need not consume you. The people that terrify you need not terrify you. You have the spirit of life in you, empowering you to know God and to, and to follow Christ. The, the grace of God has appeared, which teaches us to say no to sin. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can, as the Bible says, flee sexual temptation which I hope you can recognize now, that that is a clear allusion to Genesis chapter 39. It's a clear point, backwards point here at our friend Joseph, who right now is, is running butt naked out of Potiphar's house because Mrs. Potiphar has finally grabbed him and he's wriggled away leaving his cloak behind. Flee sexual temptation. And that leads us to our fourth and final point. Hang with me for another minute. I'll be quick. The presence of the Lord and your trials. How does this story end? I think... If we were writing it, we would want to write a different ending because this is kind of the ending that we would write in our own lives. We, we think that if we're faithful, if we do the right thing, if, if we, for example, in this case, avoid uh, temptation and don't succumb to it, we believe that the Lord ought to reward us for that with even more prosperity with even more blessing. But that's not the Lord's calculus. He's interested in something much more serious in Joseph's life and in ours. And the, the stark reality is that our obedience doesn't always lead to prosperity. Sometimes it can lead us right into significant trials. And, and you know the rest of the story here? <coughs> Joseph is falsely accused. Potiphar's wife has this ready-made story about how um, it, it wasn't as, as we knew it to be. Uh, Joseph actually was the aggressor, and he came after her, and she screamed. And uh, um, he had already disrobed, and he, when he heard her scream, he left his robe and hightailed it out of there so he wouldn't get caught. That's her concoction. And she first tells this to the servants. There's no, there's no response that's recorded by the servants. And I, I kind of read into that that they, they know the story. They didn't hear any screams. They, they know the character of this woman. Anyway, she, um, it's more important that she tells her husband this story. And so she tells uh, this, this story, and it's just full of uh, blaming. It's full of racial mindset it's 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 a it's it's actually a disgusting speech when you look at it but the problem is Potiphar's kind of caught believe women is the 
is the rallying cry of his day. He, what, what can he do? And so he puts his, his chief servant into prison. And you have to believe, understand first of all, that the, the punishment for this type of crime is capital. It's execution. Joseph ought to lose his life if this is really the case. The fact that Potiphar puts Joseph in prison rather than executing him gives you a pretty strong hint that even Potiphar doesn't really believe his wife. He knows, the char- he knows her character. And so once again, even though it looked like Joseph was well on his way up, he had come from a pit, but now he's back into a pit. And this time, based on false accusations, he was doing the right thing, and now he's in prison. And I won't spoil this. I guess I have to a little bit. He's going to be there for quite a while, a long time. This isn't just a short time in the clink. This is a prolonged trial. You, you, he, he needs to know, and you need to know, that obedience doesn't guarantee favorable outcomes. And the presence of the Lord doesn't mean freedom from any kind of problems. This is, this is what we hope the Lord would bless us with, is just a problem-free existence. But that's not what the Lord has in mind for us. And we misunderstand what, what peace it actually is and, and where it comes from. Um, Alexander McLaren is really helpful on this point. He, he, he says, peace comes not from the absence of trouble. That's not what peace is. Peace comes from the presence of God which means that right in the midst of your trial, whether it's COVID or some chronic pain or Parkinson's or uh, the loss of a loved one or um, broken relationships, you name it, we endure it. And some of you are right in the middle of enduring it right now. It means that you can have peace and comfort because it's not based on your circumstances, it's based on the presence of God. We can say with confidence, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It, it lets you know that the Lord is with you in, in every one of your trials. We sing, to this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. It has everything to do with the presence of the Lord. This is how you can, brothers and sisters, endure trials, even over the course of a long period of time. It's to know that the Lord is with you. Is the Lord with him in prison? Well... The text makes that very clear. We're tempted to think this, this is bad news, but no. The Lord, 21, was with Joseph, and he showed him steadfast love, and he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one that did it. 
The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Why? Because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Don't worry about Joseph. Joseph is in good hands. The Lord is with him. And brothers and sisters, the Lord is with you. And so go in his grace and his peace and his joy and his comfort. Amen? Amen. Amen.